Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. We are pleased to have with us today Professor Neil Baldwin. Professor Baldwin was the editor of the Niagara Magazine, a journal of contemporary poetry from 1974 to 1982. Dr. Baldwin has taught literature at numerous colleges and universities, including City College of New York, Hunter College, New School, Fordham University, as well as New York University. He is the author of numerous books, including To All Gentlemen, William Carlos Williams, the Dr. Poet, Man Ray, American Artist, and Thomas Edison, Inventing the Century. And today we will be discussing Dr. Baldwin's extremely well-researched and highly readable book, Henry Ford, and the Jews, the mass production of hate. And this can be purchased as many books can on Amazon. I purchased it on Amazon and got it very quickly. And um, we're ready to go. And I guess we'll start off, uh, Professor Baldwin, a little bit about your background and how you became interested in Henry Ford. Um. The reason I'm hesitating is because the the chain of events was so quirky. I'm, I just before I get into that, when I was when I was circulating the manuscript for this book to my you know to publishers in New York um, on the basis of some of the titles you mentioned already. Um, the unanimous reaction, almost unanimous, obviously one publisher decided to take it, but the almost unanimous reaction was, why would you want to go into this swamp of disgusting, you know, muckraking and, you know, the sort of finger wagging, you could almost hear them over the phone sort of warning me and my agent even warning me like why would you want to do this so what happened what happened was about it was about 30 years ago i looked it up i was in the new york public library uh on 42nd street doing research for the tom for the um thomas edison book that you mentioned that was published in 94 95 and i came across this little uh pocket notebook that belonged to John Burroughs, who was an American naturalist in the early 20th century. He used to, he lived uh, north of New York City and um, sort of a, like a devotee of Emerson and Thoreau, that kind of thing. He used to go, he used to go on camping trips with uh, Edison and Ford and Harvey Firestone and other such sort of magnets of, of American industry and, um, and one day, they, one night, they were sitting around the campfire after, you know, uh, at one of these trips in the Adirondacks. And he said, Henry Ford started expostulating, it's like sermonizing about how this was like 1919. The Jews caused the war. The Jews, the, in, the international conspiracy of the Jewish bankers is responsible for World War One. He was he jotting this down in his notebook. And John Burroughs' memoirs were published. None of this was ever included in the published version. So that was the day that I thought, even though I, uh, I'd been uh, asked by other publishers to do a full-on biography of Ford, but I decided that this is a story that had to be told. And that was the, that was the moment it happened. 
And little did I know um, how dark or the dark underside as some reviewers called it, how dark the story would be. But um, it's ironic how, and when you came to ask me to participate, how over the years, unfortunately, uh, it has become more relevant to our culture. Wow. Let, let, let's, let's, if you can, um, set the scene. Um, mm-hmm. Where are we in American history? Um, Henry Ford, some of the influences when he's young. What does America look like uh, yeah. during that no, period? That's very, that's very important. I will do this in a very, I'll try to be schematic about it because it's complicated. But, but Henry Ford, he was born, uh, I think, about two months after the Battle of Gettysburg to put him in his place. He was born on a little farm in Dearbornville, uh, which is uh, near Detroit, north of Detroit, Michigan. And his family was a farming family. And he grew up in a Midwestern, you know, lift yourself up by your own bootstraps, Bible reading, uh, Christian, proper laboring, farming environment. So the reason I stress that is because he never met, it's not even clear that he even met a Jew before he was in his 20s, if then. Um, First major influence, and I think probably that, you know, you had asked me before how it sort of took hold. The first major influence on him was when he was a child in in, uh, the one-room school, the classic one-room schoolhouse with the wood-burning stove, the whole the whole deal. Um, the McGuffey Reader was the textbook of choice um, pretty much throughout the entire country, but um, in, 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 in the Midwest and the remote rural areas where it wasn't always possible to get, you know, a lot access to a lot of things. McGuffey Reader was kind of like um, a little booklet of of stories in sort of gradated difficulty. So it could be used by kids across many different grades. And the excerpt from, there were some excerpts from Shakespeare in there and the most, the most powerful and most sustained, and by that I mean through every single edition of all the McGuffey readers going over a 50 year span, the, the story of the Merchant of Venice and Shylock was the most exemplary, sort of like one of the main spotlighted stories. And that definitely uh, fed into a very common, um, shall we say, stereotype of the Jew as, as an other, as a moneylender, as a user. Um, and um, that to me, the fact that Henry Ford went on through the rest of his life to personally support the publication of these readers for decades and decades and to have himself photographed in front of his fireplace reading his favorite book. Um, that to me, I'm not saying that I, I don't want, I don't think that we should can talk about a specific moment when a stereotype takes place, but that's definitely contributory to it. The other one, which I think is very important for people to understand in terms of um, him being a young person is the Christian um, 
ethos in 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 the culture of America. America as a Christian nation um, was is, well, still in some ways is very powerful, but but even back then, um, 150 or whatever, how many years ago ago it is now. Um, was very, very strong. The Bible, by Bible, meaning the, the Bible, you know, the Bible was read every night. And Henry Ford always had lots of copies of the Bible around his home when he was, uh, you know, older and he had his own place. And so the Christian thread is very strong. And by, na by nature, then the Jew becomes the, the, the out, the outcast, the, 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 the 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 man without a country, the other, the the alien, the the Oriental, and all of these kind of um, again almost abstract um, strains that drift through one's life when, especially in the formative years. So it was there. I'm not, and I well, the reason I say it like that is because it's not like Henry Ford, a little boy on a farm, was the was uh, the what could be characterized as like the only anti-Semite. Uh, it's not like that. It's more, as we will see, more as he grew older and had more money and more power and more influence that these initial stimuli were able to be engendered and, and flourished. You know, it all depends on your, on your path as you grow up right. and whether you have the resources to do something like that. Which he certainly did. Yeah. What what you recount in the book that when he initially started out, um, like like many uh, successful people, he had a number of initial business failures, um, enterprises yeah. that failed. What was unique? Uh, what was the unique aspect of his business genius and success? Well, you know, I'm glad you away glad from the Jewish issue right now. I mean, yeah, yeah. Ford, no, no, Ford. that's, you know, no, I, um, I, w in preparation, I went back through the book, which it's been, you know, I've written several books since then. <laughs> I'm not saying that as a badge of honor. It's just a reality. Okay. Right. So you go back, you know, you go back through books that you read and you realize how, how you, you did, I did make the case. I do feel like I made the case, but there was one quote I wanted to read to you from you, from to your, to your listeners. Um, so I remember I read a lot of oral history interviews with people who had known Ford and that were in, these were in the Henry Ford archives in uh, Dearborn when I was doing my research. And this one guy who used to work for him, um, Arthur Dow said this about him. Henry used to get set when he was a young man, just as he does now. I mean, he would get his mind running on something and think of it to the exclusion of everything else for a while. When Henry Ford gets set, and the word set is like emphasized, he is set, and that's all there is to it. He may be right or he may be wrong, but he is set. This to me is, you know, it's very interesting because he became friends with Edison, um, as I talk about in both of the Edison Ford books. Um, Edison's thing was, uh, you know, there is no such thing as defeat, and there's no such thing as a failed experiment. He had thousands of laboratory notebooks with, you know, he registered over a thousand patents, but he had many, many more things that he thought of that never came to fruition. And Henry Ford, yes, was the same way, but he had this, I would say, core of steel, if you will, um, about his business. And 
um, just sort of relating to that, his, his inculcated beliefs. And this is what gave him his, at first gave him his, his success with the assembly line, which is basically the first really powerful innovation that catapulted him to be a millionaire within a space of a decade. Where, but the thing about the assembly line is each guy in the factory stays in one place and the, the, the parts come, you know, along. You don't, the, the worker does not move. He is set. And that is how he becomes more efficient and how you can produce a car in two and a half hours. This is in 1913. You can produce a car in two and a half hours. So I say that because do I think he was a, a um, great sophisticated with, with money? No. No, he was not. This ties back to his antipathy to the Jews and why he ended up hating the banks and starting his own bank and literally just having all his assets be in cash because he was afraid that the Jews would, would take his money if he put it into a bank. But, but, I, but, but again, to emphasize the success of Henry Ford, the success of Henry Ford is drive toward an ideal. He said he wanted to make a car for the great multitudes, which is a very Walt Whitman-y kind of thing. Walt Whitman even talks about in his poetry about how he contains multitudes. I feel that Henry Ford was basically a populist, an inveterate populist, a man of the people. He never wanted to lose that that kind of uh, uh, sort of reputation. So when he when he went into financial failure, you can you can track this in terms of that exacerbating his anti-Semitic beliefs because the failure was connected to the Jewish moneylenders, and the success was connected to his own drive. So it's sort of you can track it like that. It's, it's fascinating that uh, we had interviewed um, uh, a while back uh, an author on Napoleon. And, and Napoleon, yeah, I saw that. N N Napoleon also had very little contact um, with the Jewish people, but he had this image of, of the moneylender and usury. His father had gotten into some financial problems. And, and later in life, Napoleon, wherever he traveled, he took the entire treasury with him. Is that so? The entire treasury, because he was—he had this whole thing about money and usury, and and so he, he kept everything with him, all the gold of France, wherever he went. So, anyway. But you see, Ari, Ari, the thing is that um, just a, just another tributary of that, um, um, you know, the the German banking system, um, which was created in the first decade or two of the twentieth century. The, the, the progenitors of that were the Warburg family in Germany. Okay, when the Federal Reserve was created, I believe in 1913 or 14, you know, I believe it was Felix Warburg. I may be wrong about which Warburg, but one of the Warburgs was on the initial sort of think tank that created, that gave, gave rise to the Federal Reserve system. So this was a very particular thorn in, um, sorry, particular thorn in Henry Ford's side was the fact that the the Jews were actually responsible for creating the banking system in this country. You know, this is, this is, I think, you know, not, I, I hesitate to, to create these direct lineages, but as you can see, there is something about, um, well, let me say one other thing. 
at one point he he referred to Jay Gould, who was the railroad magnet, you know, Jay Gould, uh, the, the sort of uh, captain of industry of his own generation as a Jew. But Jay Gould, as John Burroughs pointed out, was a Presbyterian and was his friend during prep, uh, you know, pre prep school, etc. I think he also had this tendency to to call people Jews as a kind of um, generic nomenclature, even if they like not not that they were actual Jews, but that they somehow personified what Jews did, if you will. So, so, so when when does he first take a public stand on on this issue? Become vocal, and people start to realize, whoa, Henry Ford. He makes cars, yeah. but he's also anti-war, perhaps anti-Jewish, with some, I don't know, strange ideas, perhaps, or popular ideas. When did mm -hmm. it happen? Yeah, I look, I checked in that to that also, because it's very interesting to think about it in the life, sort of the life cycle of an anti-Semite, if you, if you will, <laughs> which I, <laughs> anyway, you know, these, <laughs> these things never leave you, but, um, Okay, so I would say the public voice came when he was at a peak of success, the car was doing well, his own personal business was doing well, he was getting slightly bored with the corporate life, and he was also... Uh, not a big fan of the local newspapers in Detroit, uh, the Detroit News, the Detroit, uh, the, the classic newspapers at the time. He he felt like they weren't ideologically, he wouldn't use that word, he didn't understand that word, but they weren't like on his same page as he was mentally. And um, so there was that. And then there was um, his feeling like there must be a platform that he could have to promote his his beliefs because the other side of him was this, and several people would know, who met him noticed this, he had a very um, puritanical, he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he was an avid Bible reader, he um, was very interested in American, by American I mean like, homegrown folky you know food apple pie um over the over his um mantelpiece at his fireplace he had a quote from emerson chop your own wood and it will warm you two times you know he was very into folk dancing and american artifacts he collected like old farm implements you know that's how he started his museum which you can still go to it's a it's just an insane place and in, uh, in Detroit where you can see all of his cars and farm implements and, and toys and model trains and all kinds of things. But anyway, so he had this very sort of uh, highly developed sense of himself as a, as a sort of quintessential American pioneer entrepreneur guy. So he decided to start a newspaper. He bought out a little country paper called the Dearborn Independent he didn't, he bought it out. It was like a little, like a little, um, like circular that you would get in your mailbox, you know, out in the, in the rural delivery, you know, with all the little notices and stuff like that. 
So he, and then he hired some professional journalists to come in and beef it up editorially. Like he stole people from other, and he offered huge amounts of money for them. And then he decided this would be a good platform to start talking about the Jews because the Jews were still very much on his mind and bothersome to him. So the way he did that was he had one page in the paper, which was called Mr. Ford's own page, which was like a, the, 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 the Dearborn Independent was, um, it would be like the size of the, not to be provincial, but if you opened up the New York Times to its full, mm. you know, it was a big, um, it was only like eight pages, but it was a large uh, sheet. Folio yeah. Page. yeah, yeah. So it was that, so he had a whole page like that every week of him, you know, well, him, but written by other people. And so he started this series of essays um, on the Jew and he called, and the, 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 the interesting, not interesting, the sad thing is that he referred to the Jewish problem. The, the Jewish problem, as you know, as I'm sure you and your viewers all know, is a very old um, uh, construct because it's when you just the two words put together, the implication being that it's not that the Jews cause problems. It's that the Jews are a problem. The, the Jewishness is a problem. So it could be a problem of any walk of life. And he started having different columns like the Jews in sports, the Jews in theater, the Jews in farming, the Jews in everything you can think of and what kind of problem they presented. Um, and I would call that his, before that he had had conversations with people and sort of and kicked it around. He'd like to do that, go into people's office and put it, he used to put his feet up on people's desks and, and, and literally like chew the fat, you know, and hang out and kick these things around. And then Mr. Ford, you know, we can start our own paper, blah, 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 blah. So that is kind of his coming out, if you will, uh, in a public way. And then he started, um, when the circulation didn't really take off the way he wanted it to, he started uh, making it um, like <laughs> in the glove compartment of every Ford you had, you subscribe to the Dearborn Independent. Like you, it's not like you go to a dealer now and they say, oh, um, you can get this or that. Like you, you got this newspaper in your car and you paid for that. It was like part of, of having a Ford car. So he certainly managed to get its, its circulation up pretty fast. But that's how it took hold. And in the print medium, which was the medium of the day. And he would go around and give speeches as well. I mean, he was, he was like. <laughs> that so that's interesting. No, I, you're the first person who's asked me that. As a matter of fact, he was not a, he wasn't like a Father Coughlin or a demagogic, demagogic, excuse me, demagogic uh, orator. He was by nature a very, um, he was like five feet six or eight. He was not that tall. He weighed 145 pounds. I mean, it was a, Henry Ford was a very slight, I think it's very important when you write about these gargantuan people to understand their physicality. He was a slight fellow, you know, very tidy with his little suit and his little shirt, white shirt and tie, et cetera, and his little bowler hat. No, he was not um, a demagogue. He was a... Um, 
an infiltrator of people's homesteads in a way. Like the fact that he, the car was the, the vehicle, literally and figuratively, the car was the vehicle for disseminating his name. You know, the logo that, that, that they still use. It's very, it's almost the same script that he, his friend invented for him. And um, so he had a wide, he had a, what he would, today he would be considered to have a big platform. The Ford brand was his platform. He was not like a, a circuit rider or preacher or anything like that. 